Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. We're so excited you're here. My name is Andy Moore. I am one of your hosts for this week as we discuss Oklahoma politics and government and things of that sort. Joining me today to discuss uh, the topics du jour are my co-hosts, uh, Scott Melson. Hello, sir. Hello. Welcome back. Welcome back. You were gone last week. Good to see you again. Uh, thanks, man. Glad uh, glad to be back. I mean, I'm. I mean, I, I guess kind of. I'd rather still be on vacation, but if I'm if I'm not going to be on vacation, I'd rather be here. Scott, listeners don't want to hear that. They want to know that you're excited to be here and thrilled to share some insights with them on this podcast program. Think, things are pretty grim, man. Things are pretty grim. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, this week, Scott is is podcasting from his porch. Uh, but we're all on the computer separate in separate homes. And also, speaking of welcoming people back, Bailey Wright is now with us. Hello, Bailey. Hello, I'm back. I I wasn't sure. Did you, are you, you're changing your name, I assume, because I was just on a meeting with you and it said BW for your name. So I assumed that there was a name. Well, I'm change. going by Bailey Perkins Wright. Bailey so. Perkins Wright. Mm-hmm. Oh, but but Microsoft Teams only gives you two initials. Right. That's, that's discriminatory. They just won't let me be great. That's nameism. So, all right. Well, Bailey Perkins, right? Welcome back. It's so excited to see you again. Hi, listeners. I've missed you. Oh, good. Isn't that nice? And 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 full disclosure, listeners, the three of us have been chatting for about thirty minutes because we hadn't uh, all been together uh, except for briefly at your at your wedding, which was lovely. It, it was, was a, lovely. It was Thank a lovely so evening. The weather was great. The bride was beautiful. The groom was happy. And uh, can I just say, I don't guess we talked about it on the show, but. When you walked out and you were singing the song, it was exciting for me to see your face and realize it. And I think because I'm taller, I saw it before a lot of folks around me. But then to see everyone else's faces be like, oh, my God, that's Bailey. Oh, my Bailey's. Oh, my. And everyone's trying to, like, be low key chill about it. But they were excited. That was and you did it. You made it all the way. That was phenomenal. I have never seen anyone do that before. And it was so cool. Well, thank you. So big secret. It was. Uh, the only three people who knew that I would be singing down the aisle were my wedding planner, uh, my friend Jamie, who is an incredible, crazy good guitarist um, who played uh, the electric guitar as I was walking. Yeah. Um, and then my dad, because I needed to make sure that he was <laughs> queued up and ready to know what was going on and not surprised as he was walking me down the aisle. And so um that moment was was very special to surprise everybody, including um, my now husband, and and so yeah. That was great. Very exciting. That was yeah. That was all. That was a, a a particularly beautiful moment in a night that was filled with beautiful moments. Well, my favorite thing was uh, my neighbor was helping with setup and things like that for the wedding, and <clears throat> I've known her pretty much my whole life. We. Um, I grew up in Lawton with her kids and then coincidentally, when we moved to the duplex that we're in, she moved right next door to us. So it was awesome. We, we love having her as a neighbor, but she recorded it from up top and, uh, she didn't realize that like I was about to sing. And so, uh, you hear her commentary in the video with her and her daughter. I'm like, is that Bailey? Is she singing? She was like, Maybe that might be her. I don't know. And so she's like, shh, shh, be quiet. I think that might be Bailey. And then all of a sudden they're like, that is Bailey. So it's just, it was funny, like hearing their like in real time reaction uh, to, to that big surprise. So. <laughs> it was, 
yeah, it was, as Scott said, it was a lovely evening. So, uh, well, let's talk about something less lovely, perhaps, and that's uh, Oklahoma politics. Uh, it's, it's been a few weeks since, I mean, we've done one. Last week, I did a solo episode. Um, before that, we did just Scott and I. And uh, so we've got, I, I think, a decent amount to catch up on. Um, part of that is uh, that today, Sean Ashley reported that Oklahoma Tax Commission Chairman Clark Jolly, who has submitted his resignation effective November 1st, I can't help but wonder if this is convenient timing, given the fact that the legislature will be convening two weeks after that for special session, presumably passing maps and adjusting the uh, timeline for filing for office. Clark Jolly, a former state lawmaker, do you think that we will see his name come up on a ballot next year for some other some other position? I wouldn't be surprised. Now, the question would be what? would he run for? Um, because we are seeing different candidates pop up like Nathan Dom running for U.S. Senate now. So um, who knows uh, what position he would run for in this election cycle? Well, he's he's termed out of the ledge, right? Like he mm -hmm. did he do his full 12 years in the legislature? It so would be some run, statewide position. Yeah, sure. he can't run, can't run for House or Senate statewide there's no residency requirement right like you can live anywhere and run for statewide office um you know there's a lot of speculation that our current secretary of education is gonna be running for state superintendent because superintendent hofmeister will be termed out uh yeah, he so announced too oh he did announce you know yeah. okay all right i can't keep it all i yeah so he's running he's running um you know i'm i don't know what would uh what would Clark Jolly be interested in? Do you think? Um, I I haven't had a chance. I mean, I just saw this. The news came out around lunchtime today. I was going to go back and look to see when he was in office what committees he was on, because um, I feel like that may give us some indication. But you never know. I'm doing a checking in on Ballotpedia here and seeing exactly what was his. Yeah, so he was in Senate, uh, District 41, 2004 to 2016. Committee assignments. He was chair of a probes, education, energy, finance, rules. Uh, education, energy, finance, rules, probes. I was wondering if there might be I was wondering about labor. If he might be, if he might be running for a labor commissioner, that would be well, corporation would be, commissioner. Corporation commissioner would be possible. Man, that's a sweet gig, right? Corporation commissioner. I should do that. I should run for corporation commissioner. That's a, <laughs> that's a solid. That's a solid gig. Who's up this year? Dana Murphy got elected in 2018, and then um, uh, who's uh, Bob? Um, who's the other one that was elected last year? Bob Anthony wasn't that mm -hmm. last year? I believe hasn't so. Bob Anthony been a corporation commissioner since like 1982? For a long at, time, at least, yeah, it's been it's been a long time. Well, Bailey, you also mentioned uh, State Senator Nathan Dom is running for U.S. Senate. He announced uh, so his announcement brings the total number of candidates to three that we knew of. Um, we've got this is running for U.S. Senate against Senator James Langford. So you've got. Langford as the uh, incumbent. You've got Jackson Lehmeyer as a challenger from the far right. 
who's been in some big trouble with his uh, reporting as of late. Oh, like his finances and donations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, he's broken some campaign finance laws, it seems. (laughs) Whoopsie daisy. (laughs) Uh, Listeners, if you ever decide to run for office, you should be sure you get yourself a good compliance person to handle all of that. Because it is uh, a sticky wicket, and that's one you don't want to get messed up with. Absolutely. Uh, And then you guys, well, first let's talk about Dom before we discuss the fourth candidate that I just uh, learned, I I guess, just a minute ago that someone else has entered the race. Um, But Nathan Dom, of course, also, I, I, I think, one of, if not the most conservative members of the state Senate right now. Um, there's uh, the response from from Lehmeyer's camp was that Dom's presence in the race was a was like orchestrated by the political elite to divide the conservative vote in the primary, basically to minimize Lehmeyer's chances um, and to ensure that Lankford would make it through the primary. You know, I'm not even sure about that narrative because Nathan Dom is not the type of elected leader that flows with he he's he's very good at like riding the waves. And he's okay with being controversial, right? So I don't think he has the relationships with the elites, quote unquote, (laughs) to be able to follow through with some type of methodical plan. I I think this is because he has run for other positions before. I believe he tried to run for uh, Congress at one point. And so this is just Nathan Dom wants to do this and wants to continue elevating his voice um, and trying to pursue uh, pursue these different positions of influence. I, I I don't think there's some type of internal strategy to keep Langford. No, this is Nathan Dom wants to try to pursue that seat and thinks he has an opportunity. Well, so Dom terms out not next year, but in, cause he just got reelected. So he terms out in 2024, I think. So he can run for us Senate this time with no consequence, right? He doesn't lose his state house seat if he loses the Senate race. So why not run, right? Like it gives you a chance to raise some money, um, money that I believe under the new state laws can be transferred to other candidates or to a nonprofit. Uh, And so it it gives him a chance to raise some money from his donors on, on what would otherwise be not an election year for himself, right? So like there's, there's potentially like a strategy just from a fundraising perspective here uh, and so we'll we'll see what that looks like. But I do think and agree that it does create a faction among the far right conservatives and the pro-Trump conservatives um, who will have their vote split between Jackson and Nathan. So right. Well, and it's I mean, it's interesting because I think uh, I think Dom is has way more name recognition than Jackson Lehmeyer. And, and it kind of takes the, uh, takes a bit of the wind out of the sails for Lehmeyer because if they're going to force, they're going to force the known to be successful and not this upstart new guy who's already breaking campaign finance laws. Right. I mean, he said in the press that he has the record. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree. I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think the Langford campaign or any other like elite group has anything to do with this. I think this is Nathan Dom being Nathan Dom. He's running for Congress at least twice. Could get out of the primary, you know, I mean, <clears throat> he's, he's going to want to do something when he can't, uh, when he can't work as a Senator anymore, which will be the case within, uh, you know, in 2024, um, so, so he's, he's, he's going to try and set himself up to do, to do something, whether that's work for, you know, or maybe he wants to be the next state party chair after, uh, after Bennett with the bad hair, you know, maybe he wants to, um, maybe he wants to try and work for some national Republican organization that will hire people who say crazy shit, you know, I don't know, like, <laughs> I don't know what he wants to do, but I think this is, I think you're right, Billy, this is Dom being Dom trying to you know, bolster his name recognition, trying to make sure that he's in the press. He always wants to be, he always wants to have his name in the press for, for something, um, fundraise, you know, that's, and and I think you're right. I think it, it'll divide that section of the primary electorate. I mean, do we think that this poses any real, like, do we, do we think that, that, uh, Lawmire posed any real threat to Langford without this? I, I don't, um so i don't think there's any reason to think that this materially changes what the outcome of that election is going to be well and the the race that i think will be actually interesting <laughs> is um abby Broyles announcing that she's going to run in cd5 um that's interesting for a couple of reasons can we come right back to that though? Because yeah. there's a fourth candidate in the U.S. Senate race that I guess announced yesterday on the 30th. I just saw the news story today. Uh, his is a Democrat. Is the first Democrat to enter the race. Uh, young guy, uh, Jason Bollinger. He's a Democrat um, from Oklahoma City, I think. Now um, he. I'm looking at the Oklahoman story here, and it says uh, he received an accounting and law degree from. OU. He worked for the U.S. State Department uh, in Washington, D.C. for a couple of years before coming back to OKC and starting a law practice. He's originally from Carter, which is in Beckham County, and graduated from high school in Elk City. Uh, so, you know, everyone who announces now is announcing to so they can, well, campaign for it, but official filing isn't until April. And sometimes we get a sneaky late entry right into some of these races folks that tend to it tends to be folks who have a a statewide profile already right who who could maybe they are in another statewide office or they've got a position where they can be in the news and keep their name recognition up but there's not necessarily a uh, political advantage to filing this guy though uh, bollinger is yeah he's only 29 so young guy political newcomer aiming high. I, I don't know him. Um, you guys don't know him either, right? No. And I think that's the challenge. And for someone, I think this reeks of novice in the political space because of the things that you mentioned, Andy, most people who run for a statewide seat as powerful as U.S. Senate have built a 
um, name recognition, um, not only within their communities, but across the state, um, or have the resourcing and backing to be able to quickly fundraise millions of dollars to then build that name recognition uh, within a short period of time to try to conjure those votes. And so between um, the um, political dynamics of Oklahoma, with it being a, a strong conservative state, um, on top of um, this candidate not having that name recognition and likely not the funding to be able to develop that, this may be just someone putting his name in the hat to maybe have political aspirations in other areas in the future, but it's a slim to none chance that he has um, an opportunity to beat whoever wins in the Republican primary, right? right. Uh, yeah, I totally, I totally, totally agree. I do think, I think things are a little bit different now in that I think that this actually, this actually may be a way, depending, you know, I, I, I mean, preface this, I think you still have to raise money. You still have to run a good campaign. You still have to be a good candidate. You still have to like not trip over yourself in any kind of debates or TV interviews or whatever, which, you know, I mean, who knows there'll even be a debate. You'd have to get Langford or whoever comes on the primary to agree to a debate, which, to a debate, which they, they might not even do. Um, but because we are so polarized, right, um, there's not a lot of crossover, right? So it might be that 20 years ago, uh, 30 years ago, um, a young 29-year-old lawyer from Elk City would challenge the sitting senator um, and lose 85 to 15 because the sitting senator is going to win their all of their voters and half the other party's voters too, right? But that's not the case anymore, right? You can go to this, this guy, I mean, theoretically, he could raise no money, never do a campaign event, do nothing but get his name on the ballot and get 40% of the vote. Right. And so I don't know about that, Scott, because <clears throat> when Drew Edmondson, who has the fundraising ability, who has the name recognition, who has served in statewide office in the past, ran for governor, right? He barely got 40% of the vote, right? So I don't think this was the case to where somebody as fresh as him could even get that much. He may be lucky to get 20% of the vote. And that's if he's able to even break a million dollars in fundraising to be able to have his name out there, um, especially if the incumbent maintains his seat in uh, the, the primary election. So now if, if Jackson or Nathan were to somehow magically uh, take out Senator Langford, then maybe there's possibility that he could get more of the votes. But when we're talking statewide, it'll it's it's going to be very tough for someone who has no name recognition, who's running as a Democrat or a statewide office in Oklahoma to probably even break 25 percent of the vote. Let me see. So yeah, let me let me read. Let me alter what I said. I think I should have put a percentage on it. I would say I think we're so polarized now that there's very little crossover. I think Drew is actually a kind of a special case because Drew um, did have all those resources that you mentioned. Drew also had some serious baggage in rural counties that I think hurt him with some folks that might have been more inclined to vote for a Democrat and in, in uh, another Democratic candidate. Um, 
I guess I just think there's so little crossover. I think that most Democrats who show up and vote in this election are going to show up and they're going to vote for whoever is running against James Lankford, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know. I can't. And so, so maybe but does, there's not. But does that break 40%? I don't think that does in the state. So, because even with like, for example, when Abby Broyles ran for statewide office, she didn't break yeah. 40, right? Yeah. Where did she, where did she end up? Where did, where did she, where did she end up at? Um, it was something in the thirties. Yeah. So, so I guess, so I shouldn't, I shouldn't have said 40%. I pulled that number out of my ass, but like, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is like, I, I think that this, I think that Mr. Bollinger, you know, assuming that he, you know, does everything else at kind of the level you would expect a first time candidate to do it. I, I, you know, I don't know that his numbers will be that far off of any other candidate that would run for Senate uh, uh, against, uh, against Langford. Um, because we're just that polarized and that's the way the electorate looks right now. So it may not be, it may not be 60, 40, it may be 65, 35 or 70, 30 or whatever it is. But I think, I, I think Democrats that show up and vote in the U S Senate race next year, by and large, they're going to vote for the democratic candidate, whoever that is. And I think Republicans that show up and vote in the Senate race next year are going to vote for the Republican candidate. And so I don't know that there's a whole lot that Mr. Bollinger can do seasoned politi seasoned politician or not that's going to change that dynamic that's the point that i would try to make so i will add to this by saying like my my brain starts at what's the baseline for straight party voting straight ticket voting on the ballots right so last year in 2020 um uh let me see here uh almost half of all voters so 45 0.5% of all voters used straight party voting during the general election in November. So that it was higher among Republicans. 71% of straight party voters were Republican, 28% were Democrats. So for Democrats, that comes out to just under 200,000 votes. Now, obviously, turnout was record high last year, but going back to 2016 uh, and 2012, the last, so the three last. Uh, general elections, presidential general elections, the Democrats have had, I mean, right close to 200,000 votes. It was like 218,000, 200 or 187,000, 198,000. So right around the same limit. Republicans, however, had way more, um, just more votes. So if, you know, it's a, in a gubernatorial election year, a mid, mid cycle year, uh, midterm elections, it, turnout's a lot lower, right? Like, uh, I think 15, 20% lower than it would be in a general. And so you're going to have uh, a lower number of votes, but proportionally, I would assume it's going to be about the same, right? So somewhere around 30% uh, of Democrats are going to vote straight ticket, uh, but that is not a majority of voters. And so that is, I, I think he's going to, so he's going to pick up all the straight, all the straight party voters, presumably, and he would pick up presumably a few others that might just not like whoever the Republican nominee is. If it's Lankford, uh, if it's Dom, you can, you know, it's that, but I don't, you know, mathematically, I see it's a very difficult path. However, I will say, as we often say, at let's fix this good for him for trying, right? It takes yeah, a that was out. definitely the point I was going to raise. I mean, yeah. anytime you're trying to run for office, 
um, that's a great thing to to put your name in the hat to um, always challenge offices to not leave anything going unchallenged uh, because that will then um, energize voters to have a reason to participate because otherwise there won't be a U.S. Senate general election. <laughs> there would just be an election for Republicans to pick a candidate if, if a Democratic candidate didn't run um, for that race. And so um, it's always good and healthy for our democracy for people to not leave seats unchallenged. Right. That's exactly right. And I was going to say that's the, the, the risk is that if he doesn't run and nobody else runs, then yeah, whoever wins the Republican primary gets elected. And uh, I, a, a third or a little more than a third of Oklahoma voters don't even get a chance to vote at all. And that is a real tragedy, tragedy of democracy. So uh, yeah. And it takes a, a ton of courage. Why not? If he's interested in getting into politics, might as well jump in at the top, right? There's no harm in that. Um, as, as long as Scott said, you don't, you know, royally mess up along the way, like mess up on your uh, disclosure filings with the ethics commission or campaign finance reports, those kinds of things. Cause sometimes people run to either spur turnout to help get more people participating or they run to help build name recognition. Right. And so I think as long as, he understands the realities and the challenges that he faces in this election cycle. And he's using it as opportunity um, to continue building and growing and, and getting to know the people of Oklahoma, then it could be a good opportunity for him. Can I, can I get just one free piece of advice for him? This is just i uh, I'm not a, not a professional consultant. So we'll, uh, we'll do this. This will be free of free of charge. Uh, don't have an affair with a staffer. Um, don't don't do that. There's a lot of a lot of first time candidates seem like they fall into that trap, declare for office, uh, prepare to have their entire life scrutinized. And then three months later, they're having an affair with their staffer. So or someone else. So don't don't do that. Uh, yeah, that's that's always good advice. Uh, while, while we're talking about candidates, too, uh, because I'm as I'm like going through all of the news stories from the past couple of weeks, another one that I missed is that. Uh, Mike Mazzi has dropped out of the state treasurer race. This was earlier this week, I guess last weekend. Um, he said that Raymond James Financial, with whom he's been long associated, did not want him involved in the race. Um, and so he dropped out. That's interesting. I was like, whoa, okay. Um, I wonder if it was one of those deals where it's like, listen, you can either run for office or you can work here, but you can't do both, which is... There are a lot of corporations that I, I've learned mm -hmm. that will tell people you are not allowed to run for office, even if it is a nonpartisan yeah. position. So, yeah, I think like when I was at the university and this may have changed, but you could you could run for city council, I think, but nothing higher city council and school board, but not anything that was partisan. Although I yeah. feel like they may have changed that because I'm not entirely sure. So. I was, I used to be on a homeowners uh, association. That was the highest office I've held and a scooter club. That was fun too. Well, and I believe that may be the case because Bria Clark works for the university of Oklahoma, but she serves as mayor. And so, but that's a nonpartisan race. So that, that makes sense. Uh, speaking of city 
municipal elections, Oklahoma City uh, City Council this week voted on their redistricting criteria. And listeners, if you tuned in for my solo episode last week, you heard me uh, rant about that for a few minutes, the issue, not about the city. Um, I I have mixed feelings about Oklahoma City. I'll chime in on this. They, uh, Councilman Stonecipher had a resolution that basically said city council is going to do it themselves. They're not going to use a commission. Um, people, not politicians, and some other groups, League of Women Voters, and some other folks had uh, encouraged the city council to consider using some sort of commission, either in an advisory role or uh, a citizen-led commission to do their drawing themselves. City council, as Bailey just said, is nonpartisan. I don't think anyone's really worried about uh, partisan gerrymandering in a nonpartisan race, but we are worried about politicians drawing their own districts, right? They may know which, uh, they, they certainly know which neighborhoods are favorable to them. And as I have long argued, there's, uh, there's no reason in my mind that politicians should get to pick their own voters. Maps should be drawn to reflect the community or the state or whatever. Uh, and so it's still ongoing that the, the door leaves the, uh, or the, the door is open still for um, them to use a commission. I think some council members are interested in that. Um, they did say, uh, uh, council member Stone Cipher said that the plan is to, you know, basically have the, st- the staff draw the maps, release it to the public, have some public meetings, get some feedback, and then tweak the maps as necessary, which is a tremendous step. That's actually really good. I wish the legislature would release their maps so we could <laughs> so we could do that <laughs> there. Um, anyway, so that's I just want to have a quick note. I know Stone Cipher's worried about what's happening in Norman because they have a commission and it's become polarized down there. And like Norman's a different deal, right? You know, college towns, it, it's always a different deal in, in college towns like that. Oklahoma City is a is a very large city. It's just a little bit different. All right. Um, Bailey, I cut you off earlier about the race for the fifth district between Abby Broyles and Stephanie Bice. Let's go back to that. Yeah. So right after Abby ran against Jim Inhofe, she started a nonprofit called Grit focused on um, voter engagement, um, especially among young people. Um, And so people knew that, you know, she was eventually going to run for something else. Like that wasn't going to be um, her only run for office. And so uh, she's made the decision and announced that she's going to run against Stephanie Bice for Congressional District 5. What makes that interesting is the um, dynamics of Oklahoma City, particularly Oklahoma County, right? Um, You have um, this area is more progressive than other parts of Oklahoma. And so with her ability to fundraise and her name recognition, um, it could be potentially be a close race, right? So we'll have to see how it goes. Well, I think the other thing that makes this interesting is, um, you know, to to circle back to what Andy was just saying, we, we don't know what the maps look like, right? And we're not going to know what the maps look like until November 15th, right? And so... You know, there's a couple scenarios. There's there's a scenario in which CD five <clears throat> actually doesn't look that much different than than it does than it did in in 2018 or, or in 2020. There's a scenario in which the district remains very purple. You know, it remains maybe an R plus two 
district and in a in a year where Dems do well nationally and Republicans are not very enthusiastic and there's high Dem turnout, all those sorts of things, it's a, a seat that can absolutely swing. There's another scenario where you carve up the district in particular ways and take it from an R plus three district to an R plus 15 district. Like that's absolutely possible, in which case it would become, I mean, you know, nothing is impossible, but it would become a very, very challenging, challenging seat to win. Uh, depending on depending on what the map looks like, and and that's going to come down to one, how much how important is it? How important is it that to to Republicans in the state and Republicans nationally, um, how how important do they feel it is to protect this seat? Right? Do they feel that Bice is vulnerable and that that she needs to be shored up in the district? That's one component, right? Um, and that's something that uh, the state. The state party will look at, as well as as well as uh, the Republican National Committee and the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee. I'm sure will have input into that as well. Um, another thing is caucus dynamics, right? Um, within the, or I shouldn't say caucus uh, politics within the delegation, right? So you have <clears throat> we have some very senior representatives like uh, Tom Cole, um, and then we have the most junior member of the delegation is Representative Vice. Um, some of the senior members may or may not like you messing with their districts too much. Um, and if you're going to start taking, you know, if you're going to start messing with CD5 by necessity, that means that you have to mess with the other districts as well, which could mean there's changes to like Frank Lucas's district or Tom Cole's district that, that for various reasons they may or may not want. Right. Um, so those dynamics play. So that's, those are other, those are a couple other reasons why this is an interesting race. But the third thing is, um, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen, but uh, it's. Uh, I mean, we do we know that the race is going to be Bice v. Broyles, right? I don't think we necessarily know that either. Um, Representative Bice could face a primary opponent. Abby Broyles could face a primary opponent. I assume Tom Guild is going to run. You know, I don't think. Uh, I don't. <clears throat> I don't think he'll win. Um, um, but, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't that long ago that, that, uh, that there was, uh, doesn't, 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 wasn't that long ago that there was a, a, a democratic Congresswoman who represented CD five. Um, you know, I have no idea what her plans are or are not, but, um, there's always that possibility as well. So, um, I agree with you, Bailey, that Abby could, Abby could be a formidable candidate, um, in Oklahoma City, but I think that that depends on a what the district look like looks like, and b what happens in in the race in terms of a primary between now and then. You know that you brought up some really interesting points, especially because for Republicans, it's only to their advantage to make those changes, right? Um, I don't foresee. Congressman Cole or Congressman Lucas having any fuss about changes in their district because those areas are already conservative, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter if you bring in sprinkles of progress progressive um, neighborhoods into their district. Um, it's not going to change the overall composition of um, the percentage of, of how folks vote in their districts. And so um, that will be the, the key to whether the stronghold will remain to where all five congressional districts will remain to Republicans, or if there'll be a shot for Democrats to hold um, 
CD5 again will be how those lines are drawn. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to, to see if, if parts of Oklahoma City or, or certain parts of Oklahoma County aren't in CD5. Like, that would be very, very strange, but also the public will know why. It'll be very overt. <laughs> I, I don't like I don't like you guys tempting the the thing from on high, right? Like that's this is uh, <laughs> you're tempting the thing from on high from high. It's not the thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a a good West Wing reference. I as someone who has spent an inordinate amount of time drawing maps of of our congressional districts and looking at all of the precincts and all the ways to draw the maps, the only reason that they would divide. Oklahoma County in a, in such a way uh, is for like 100% purely partisan uh, reasons, right? Like now the caveat of like keeping Tinker in the fourth district fine. That's been that way for a long time. Everybody wants it. That's fine. Um, but otherwise, as, uh, as listeners may remember from last week, if you look at the map that, that people, not politicians has submitted and several others, Dan Williams and some other folks, there's, there's only there's a the right number of people in Oklahoma County. It's in the county limits. Like there's no reason to make it a funny looking shape. Just keep it. It's happy little rectangle, and let's move on down the road. And I don't, you know, I don't really know. I assume nationally, the Republicans want every single seat. They're not just going to give up on one and think, well, it's not a big deal. But who knows? I, I mean, I wouldn't say that they wouldn't think it's a big deal. I think that they would. I think the issue is not that they don't want to keep every single seat. I think the issue is, do they think that they need, do they need to shore up this district? Number one. And number two, does shoring it up cost them anything? Right. Um, I don't, I, I agree. I don't, I don't particularly think that it does. Um, but I'm also, they haven't asked me to come into the room and talk to them when they're, <laughs> when they're deciding how to, to draw the map. So you know, I don't, I, I personally, I think, I think both scenarios are, are equally plausible. I think we could, I think we could end up with a map that looks pretty, pretty similar to the one we have. <clears throat> I think we could end up with a map where Oklahoma, where CD5 in particular looks, looks wildly different. And I, I don't really know. I think there's good reasons that you could expect either one of those things. Well, and, and less, less than thinking about the Republican Democratic divide, they really should be thinking about the ideological divides, right? Ensuring that the makeup of districts have equitable representation of moderates, right? Because the far right conservatives, and, and maybe they're just loud, I don't know, but it seems like there's a, a growing um faction of the Republican Party post the loss of of Donald Trump in his election, right? And so I mean we're we're seeing glimpses of that and the struggles within the the state party <laughs> and those challenges. And so trying to you know divide things up to keep um one congressional district that could potentially be purple could then lead to people of certain factions being more likely to win seats, right? So, I mean, I, I think the 
mask debates and the vaccine debates and the schools, whether to be in person or not, are just the tip of the iceberg on the philosophical discussions that are happening among um, conservatives in this time. And so I think even that's a piece they need to be thinking about when when districts and lines are being drawn. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, uh, as we near the end of the episode, uh, I wanted to touch on the the update this week uh, regarding the case of Julius Jones. Um, so in case you've missed it, a couple of weeks ago, I guess, the Pardon and Parole Board met uh, and voted uh, to recommend not not clemency, that's the new one, but no, so, commutation. So commute, yeah, yes. to commute a sentence. So they, they recommended to commute a sentence. Um, and so went to the governor and uh, the governor took no action. And then this week said that he is going to wait for the clemency hearing, which is coming up. And from it what I understand- happens 21 days before, before a scheduled execution. And his execution is scheduled, I think the same week as special session. I think it's like- uh, It's it's- like November 18th or something? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so that's during special session, which is... I think that the commutation, or well, the clemency hearing is, I think, October 21st. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that, yeah, that math checks out. And so from what I understand from, um, you know, talking to people like Ryan Kiesel, I, I think that this move makes sense. It's somewhat like with the given the responsibilities of the board and what information can be presented at this meeting. So the clemency hearing provides for testimony from more people, including Mr. Jones himself, right? Which I would argue is very important. Um, and, uh, and so the governor said he's going to withhold making a decision until he has that opportunity, which I, I think uh, I, I know a lot of folks, you know, if I was him, right. Every day that goes by that, I'm still in prison or still on death row is not a good day. Um, but I think given the context, this move makes sense. Do you guys have any other, am I wrong on that? I just hope that the governor isn't using it as an excuse to, you know, kick the can down the road. Uh, because either way, this case has received national attention, right? Um, and the governor has positioned himself to be a um, criminal justice reform governor, right? Um, so in his mind, he may be stuck between, you know, do I really believe in the things that I've been pushing for in criminal justice versus the other side of um, his party who's quote unquote tough on crime, right? Would it make him look weak on crime? to commute this sentence, right? Um, and so I hope that the governor is truly using this as an opportunity to weigh out the facts because somebody's life is in jeopardy, right? This country and this state has had a history of killing folks who were innocent, right? And this is a huge decision that we can't go back and say, whoops, my bad. We, we realize that you're innocent. Let's bring you back to life. Once you execute someone, that's it. And we have had a history of that in this country, especially of Black men. And so the governor really has to take his obligation seriously um, and do the right thing, right? 
weigh out the facts and do the right thing. Well, and on re- related note, uh, there's that report that came out this week from the Washington Post. Who was that about police shootings, right? Um, and Oklahoma is the worst, right? Oklahoma City, I think, was the worst. Uh, the, in the what? Country. Yeah, did you see that? No, I'm shocked. <laughs> oh, there's that sarcasm, listeners. What? <laughs> No way that's true. I can't you're telling me there's gambling going on in here? No. But also um Oklahoma County um I'm trying to think of which levels of uh law enforcement, but they just announced on the news and this was like maybe a day or two that I heard um uh, of their uptick in body cams. So coincidentally with that announcement of how terrible we are in use of force. Um, they're also announcing that they are scaling up uh, different law enforcement professionals use of, of body cams and in, in how they're supposed to keep those on. And so I just thought that timing was interesting. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Oklahoma <laughs> County just announced that all their deputies are going to have body cams. Uh, yeah. So either, either, um, and I don't know that, I don't know if most of the, I don't think most of the shootings are by Oklahoma County Sheriff's deputies. I think it's, I think the data was by municipal, yeah, city police, but, um, you know, more cameras means either we'll have less shootings or we'll see more murders. That's, and, and to your point, right? Like, uh, when a police officer shoots and kills somebody, that person did not have the opportunity to stand trial. We, we essentially allowed that officer to be judge jury and executioner yes that's exactly what i was going to say that's exactly right uh and that is not how it's supposed to be right uh, and while the the culture is changing we still have people who have this um defensiveness for our law enforcement right or wrong right and so it's crucial that we are providing those mechanisms, especially if we're going to allow law enforcement to continue having the power that they have mm-hmm. to always be monitored, right? For, to always have those recordings. Cause I, I, I'm still um, floored at the guy who was in that truck mm. and someone who captured the footage of mm-hmm. the road rage incident to where the guy in the truck literally came over and pushed the other vehicle yeah. into the median and could have killed the yeah. people in that car and could have killed that four-year-old he had in the back seat. Yeah. And the the deputy said, you know, you did a stupid thing and this is borderline, this or this, but I'm going to let you go and just give you a ticket. Like that's, that's insane, you know, but footage keeps people accountable and public opinion and, and the advocacy and awareness that people have today will also keep folks accountable to where, you you kill somebody um you have to to there all eyes are on 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 the system at yeah. this point that's what i'm trying to say you know coming coming back to julius jones case you know um in terms of i one i agree with you bailey i hope the governor isn't just using this as a way to delay uh a decision um you know, as, as a way to to delay his decision, especially if it's a decision he's already made that he knows is going to be unpopular. Um, so that's the first thing. I also, though, I think agree 
you know, I, I don't know enough about the like legal nuance here. You know, and if you've talked to Ryan and he said that like the, that it, it makes sense in terms of the kinds of hearing and the kinds of, you know, facts and other pieces of evidence that can be heard that it makes sense to wait until after the clemency hearing, then, you know, I, I, I can give the governor the benefit of the doubt there. I just, I don't know, maybe I'm a cynic. I am a cynic. <laughs> um, I don't, th I think we're at the point now where Governor Stitt doesn't make any decision or public statement without weighing how he thinks it's going to affect his presidential run. So, um, you know, I think we're, I, I hope that he carefully considers all of the evidence and makes what he feels is truly the right decision based on all the available, you know, all the available evidence and data. Um, I think we're kidding ourselves if we don't think politics has played into this. I just, I think, uh, I think there, I think politics for better or worse is, is absolutely part of this. Um, and I wouldn't even say politics. I would say um, advocacy because the grassroots movement of people lifting this case has made the difference, right? The education that's happened. And then even the documentary um, that, uh, the last defense documentary, for instance, then spurred. And so I, I think the, the growing conversation and even national attention um, is leading to where we are today because if that didn't happen, he would have just been been executed without any type of scrutiny. I, I agree. I guess what I'm saying is when I say politics, I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that the governor is going to make this decision in a vacuum without considering what the implications are for his political future, whatever he wants that to be. Gotcha. That's, yeah. yeah, gotcha. That's that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't, you know, I make jokes all the time about state running for, uh, running for president because I think that's what he wants to do. <laughs> like, I, I think that's his, I think that's his end game. Um, maybe he will, maybe he won't, I don't know, but, um, you know, I, I think that this is a decision that should be made without considering how it will or won't impact your political fortunes. Um, I think that most politicians of both parties absolutely think about that when they make those decisions, which is unfortunate when you're, um, and it's, it's more than unfortunate. It's terrible when you're talking about decisions that affect the taking of a life, um, innocent or not quite frankly um um so that's what i i guess what i mean when i say that no matter what the situation is i think politics will be will be a part of it which is not great yeah yeah see i told you i the first thing i said in this episode things are grim yeah that's i we'll just <laughs> leave it with you to bring us on. <laughs> we got we got happy for a moment some more in that episode Hey, you know what? We, we we actually we can we can leave on a couple positive notes. So um, Oklahoma City, at least, COVID cases are down fifty percent in the last four Ooh. weeks um, from the last week of August. We've seen a, a drop of about fifty percent, which is fantastic. We've seen a significant uptick in vaccinations. Great job, everybody! Keep getting them shots. If you haven't gotten your shot, get it. If you have no people that haven't gotten their shot, please tell them to get it. And um, people can now get their booster if they need. Yeah. To. So if you if you got a, if you got Pfizer. Uh, if you get the Pfizer vaccine and you're six months past your second shot and you're over the age of 65 or you're 19 to 64 and you have a comorbid condition or are in a high exposure occupation, which includes frontline health workers, teachers, um, those are like the big two, um, then you're eligible for a booster. Um, you don't have to get one. Most of the places that are requiring vaccinations 
at least so, so far as I've seen, they're not requiring boosters. Boost whether to, whether to get boosted um, is is kind of up to you, um, and it's a decision you should make in, in consultation with your doctor based on your risk factors and and, and health history and all those sorts of things. Um, but if you haven't gotten your shot, you should get it. Uh, if you know people that haven't gotten it, encourage them to get it. Other big, big, big news um, from in the COVID front today. So Merck, um, which does not have a COVID vaccine, they have actually been in trial, <laughs> uh, conducting a trial for a drug. This is a, an antiviral drug that's called Molnupiravir. Molnupiravir. Watch your mouth. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Um, so this is an antiviral drug that's been in a clinical trial uh, for treatment of acute COVID-19 disease. Um, big deal. They actually stopped the trial early because the results are so promising. Um, two things can stop a clinical trial early. One, if it looks like, oh, this is hurting people, they will stop the trial early. If it looks like the drug is harmful or the intervention is harmful, they'll stop the trial and say we shouldn't be this. It's no longer ethical to conduct this experiment because it looks like not only does this not work, but it might be harmful. But the other reason you can stop the trial early is if it looks like the results are so good, it is unethical to continue the trial because to continue the trial is depriving other people that might benefit from this treatment or intervention. And that looks like the case with this. So they stopped the trial early. It looks like for uh, prevention of hospitalization in acute COVID-19 disease um, decreases hospitalization by 50% uh, in the treatment group uh, compared to the placebo group. Um, eight deaths in the control group, none in the placebo group. So significant, Im uh, uh, significant impact on hospitalization and mortality, which is really the ball game, right? Um, I mean, that's that's that would that would be huge. Uh, it's a medicine that's taken twice daily for five days. Um, I have not seen any data on on side effects. Um, um, you know, I don't know if they'd be similar to the other antivirals or not. Um, but this is this is big news. Uh, Merck has said that they're going to put their data together and apply for emergency use authorization from uh, the FDA and other world worldwide regulatory bodies. This would be a game changer, not just in the United States, but also um, in places around the world that don't yet have access to vaccines or for which vaccination is going to be particularly challenging given the lack of health infrastructure. To have a therapy that is well tolerated, easily administered, and ideally inexpensive um, would absolutely be a game changer. So this is really, really huge news. Another piece of data that I'll be looking for that obviously we don't have yet um, is whether or not this is a medicine that will have an impact on development of long COVID symptoms. Um, I think what we're going to see um, in the future, incoming months and years, is is a, a real strain on our healthcare system because of the number of patients who had COVID and then have had persistent symptoms um, of varying degrees of severity. So um, if this drug uh, impacts uh, the, the development of long COVID by reducing the risk there, which we don't know yet, that would also be tremendous. So we can end on a happy note because we have two positive pieces of COVID news. So not everything is grim, just Senate races and death penalty cases. Listeners, that is huge because in the almost two years that I've been on the pod and the almost, what, like year and a half that we've been in the pandemic, this is one of the first times where I've heard Scott genuinely <laughs> talk about something positive in the direction that the pandemic is going. So I feel good. And this is this is huge. 
That's yeah, exactly right. Good, good COVID news today. That's a good place to end. We'll we'll do that. Uh, Scott, thanks for being here. Thanks for the good news. Yeah, man. Glad to be here. Uh, Bailey, thanks for being here. Good to see you. Thank you, Andy. Listeners, thank you for being here as well. Of course, you're why we're here. Um, please uh, go ask your neighbors. Oh, it's nice weather. Go outside, ask your neighbors if they're registered to vote and encourage them to do so if they haven't already. Uh, we have many elections coming up, uh, including uh, some important ones next year, starting, I think, in February with the Oklahoma City mayoral election. Um, Tulsa, I think, has a mayoral election next year. Uh, not to mention all of the state legislature, you know, state house, um, half the Senate and uh, Congress, all these things, governor, statewide elected. It's, it's time to start thinking about that. We are uh, a year and a month away from election day. So uh, we should, uh, we got to start now, folks. All right. On that note, remember decisions are made by those who show up. Have a good week. Thank you.